the value of investments can fall as well as rise, and losses may be made. Remember, the majority of a value of a business would typically sit in year three and beyond. And so history would suggest that missing out on the first year of a big technology change event is not that significant in the ultimate return profile experienced over the full cycle. Welcome to the fourth episode of our Quality Investing podcast series. And I'm very excited to be joined today by two of my fellow quality colleagues, Aubrey Pretorius, a portfolio manager in our global quality team, and Nikhil Solanke, an analyst who specializes in global equities. Welcome both. That's good to be here. Hi, Kerry. Nice to be here. The focus of today's discussion is going to be on the giant elephant in the room, or shall we say the giant robot in the room, and that is artificial intelligence. Now, to the ordinary man on the street, AI seems to have emerged absolutely overnight, and this is largely due to the arrival of OpenAI's ChatGPT release at the tail end of 2022. Arguably, ChatGPT is one of the most tangible and sophisticated outputs of AI to date, and consequently, we've seen a massive hype around this innovation. Now, some may listening, some listening may or may not be aware, but we've actually been witnessing AI hype cycles and winters for over 70 years now. But despite its long history of development, it's actually a very new concept for most. So, Nikhil, perhaps you could kick us off and demystify this broad term artificial intelligence and explain to us all what exactly it is. Yeah, thanks, Kerry. And I think to take a step back very broadly, there are two types of compute. We get traditional or deterministic compute, which is what we're all familiar with. And this is where a, a software or program receives an input, calculates an output based on a predefined set of rules. The second system is what we call probabilistic compute. Here, a computer learns from inputs and outputs that we show it. We show lots of inputs and outputs, and it learns using statistical techniques how to pattern match between those inputs and outputs. And so when we showed a new input, it can create an output. As an example of a probabilistic system, um, in the game chess, if you were to try and build a computer program to play chess, after, after three moves by each player, there are over three billion possible uh, positions on the board. And obviously, uh, building a deterministic system which knows each of those three billion positions and knows the best move is just impractical. And so this is a situation where building a probabilistic system that can predict what the best move is, depending on the game state, makes a lot more sense. The actual term, though, uh, AI is quite interesting in that um, it's taken on lots of different meanings over time. So the guy who invented the term John McCarthy in the 1950s um, ca calls this the AI effect, where as soon as something becomes too common, it, it stops becoming AI and we kind of give it another name. And, th and there's lots of examples of this in, in, in recent history. For instance, in the early 2010s, uh, Netflix's or Facebook's um, recommendation algorithms to recommend you your next show or fill your face. Facebook feed was seen as kind of the cutting edge of AI. And today we just call them machine learning or recommendation engines. And it's kind of lost that magical uh, essence of, of what AI is. So we, we typically refer to AI as the frontier technology or the cutting edge of, of AI. And, and today um, that is generative AI, which is the type of AI that powers ChatGPT. Nikhil, I think your, your chess example is a great analogy of the difference between a system like IBM's Watson that won Jeopardy, what was that, just over 12 years ago, and ChatGPT. Watson was clearly a very powerful system that could search through a huge amount of data and find the best answer, but it couldn't really explain the reasoning or understand the context of that question. And if we think about ChatGPT, on the other hand, 
it is a system that can generate and understand natural language. And so it can inter interact with us as humans, it can write stories, it can summarize articles, and importantly, it can learn from its previous interactions to improve over time. Now, that feels to, to me at least that it can open a whole wide new world of possibilities for both AI and human interaction. Don't you agree? Yeah, it's a, it's a good comparison because both uh, Watson and ChatGPT have uh, some similarities. Uh, Watson was clearly a, a very narrow system design, designed to do a very specific task, which it was quite good at. ChatGPT, on the other hand, um, has uh, a lot more general capability and it can do a, a lot more things. And there, there's kind of three reasons for this. The first is uh, the decline in compute costs. So M Moore's law has really driven down the decline in compute costs over the last few decades. And it's been, and it's made it possible to train um, these very large models in a, in a cost-effective manner. The, the, the model that underlies ChatGPT took th three months to train. Um, the second breakthrough is really on the techniques we use to create these models. So ChatGPT is based on a transformer model architecture, which is what the T stands for in ChatGPT. And the, these kind of tips and tricks in, in, in the models give them um, more powers and, and allows them to use that compute to the, to the fullest of the extent. And then finally, the abundance of data, as, as you mentioned, Aubrey, has, has just grown and grown over time, which means we can give these models far, far more data than we could previously. The, the amount of data on the internet is 50 times more than it was just 10 years ago. And so these factors have all kind of combined together to give a, a model like ChatGPT with these kind of amazing capabilities. So ChatGPT can't really reason in, in the way that, you know, we do, but it, but it can get very close and, and kind of mimic human reasoning because it's seen so much of it on, on the internet. And, um, and, and that's why it's, I suppose, a big deal because we got these models that have these very general capabilities that can write software, write writing, um, create images, and, and even deal with video and audio. And, and so for me, that's why it's a big deal. Aubrey, um, Nikhil's obviously highlighted that this ChatGPT application has wider use. It's very useful. It's got general applicability. But there seem to be a lot of technology leaders like Elon Musk and Steve Wozniak, uh, the Apple co-founder, coming forward with very strong calls to action and concerns around the pace of AI. So in your opinion, how do you see the current state of disruption and what are you anticipating is in store, say, in the next year or two? Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, if we look at the performance of some of the AI-related stocks, it certainly looks like the it's a technology that has the potential to change the world as we know it. I mean, it's interesting to look around. I mean, every single business is trying to jump on this bandwagon, claiming they are AI-driven. Everyone is now .ai. And by the way, they claim to have been using AI for a very long time. Uh, I think it's funny. I saw recently a MIT study that showed 87% of businesses expect AI to benefit their business. It reminds me a little bit of the 90s when every business that feared the internet disruption said they had some sort of internet strategy. But that's that's clearly just not, not, not realistic. I mean, AI is not some sort of magic bullet that will automatically benefit everyone. I think it's it is going to be disruptive. Um, and it will change 
the status quo and clearly is going to create winners and losers. But for that to happen, I think people, organizations and sectors will need to innovate and change the current way they're doing things. And so if we if we maybe just take a step back, I mean, we have seen two major waves of technology change in the past 23 years. I mean, businesses first had almost to migrate to innovate. This almost started the, the cloud migration back in the late 90s, early 2000s, when the internet became more widely available and reliable. I mean, companies like Salesforce emerged in 1999 as really a pioneer of the SaaS model that enabled the second wave of the digital transformation um, as innovation really started to accelerate. And that made technology really a competitive differentiator rather than a cost. We are now, I believe, in the beginning of this third wave, which is generative AI. Uh, The reason why I gave this context is really that the technology waves that we're seeing are clearly accelerating. I mean, for example, it took the internet um, to reach 100 million users seven years. It took Facebook four and a half years, and ChatGPT reached 100 million users in three months. And so in the past, we had the typical chief technology officer or the IT head would ask for IT budget to adopt a new tool or to move to the cloud. Now, every CEO can see the value and urgency of using generative AI. And so because they have actually used the products themselves. And so in the last nine months, we have seen organizations going from being very skeptical about it to really embracing this at pace. This is no longer a technology that's in the distant future. It is happening today and now. I mean, for example, Microsoft just reported that their developers are already seeing a 35% productivity improvement using generative AI. I mean, ChatGPT itself was created using a Gen AI tool called GitHub Copilot. <laughs> and so it's funny um, you heard me right. We're already at this stage where AI tools are are able to generate or to create more AI tools. So just think about that for a moment in terms of what that actually means in terms of the speed of innovation and efficiency. And so considering so far, I would think the innovation has really been more focused on, on the simple automation tasks. I mean, you can look at, for example, QuickBooks. They are the software in helping small and medium-sized businesses to manage their finances and to do tax. I mean, they recently launched an AI product that can help to do simple taxes in just five to 10 minutes. I mean, this shows how a company can use their cloud data, integrate generative AI, and deliver productivity gains for customers and their own organization in a relatively short space of time. And so it's clear that companies that invested in technology during these previous waves are suddenly very differentiated with the first mover advantage. And so when we look at the current investment opportunity, we can look at it almost across the technology stack, all the way from the infrastructure layer to software solutions. So while there's clearly a lot of excitement around it, it's important to realize there's still a lot of heavy lifting that is required to make this a reality. And so we look at the opportunity set really in two ways. 
I think at the infrastructure layer, we will need to upgrade the existing infrastructure to really support generative AI for it to scale properly. We need more computing power that runs more efficiently on a common technology stack in the cloud. Now, this is clearly where we've seen some of the biggest near-term opportunity, given the huge demand for hardware companies like NVIDIA, who are leading the market with their graphic processing units. I mean, in some ways, they are similar to the Cisco's in the early days of the internet, where they provided an essential foundational technology for the next layer of innovation. So we think companies like ASML, TSMC, or a Samsung are the first natural layer to benefit from the adoption of increased demand in AI. I think then secondly, and probably more importantly from where I'm sitting, where I think the more real sustainable value will be created in generative AI will come from applications and solutions built on top of these large language models. This will however take some time. Um, and so buyers be aware Everyone will probably come out claiming they are the killer app that will change behavior. And so while you will have to be more selective, the real killer app like the Googles or the Amazon of the internet era that changed our lives forever is in the process of being developed and will likely show up in the not too distant future. Aubrey, you've just mentioned some powerhouse companies like Amazon and Google that emerged from the internet era. Now, the internet is a prime example of a significant disruption, not only to the way we work and live, but it fundamentally reshaped the entire market. So fast forward now to 2023, generative AI is here, it's here to stay, it's here to disrupt. How do you perceive this innovation reshaping the current markets? And maybe you can bring it to life for us by bringing in a few examples of businesses that might be affected. Yes, and so from an investment perspective, we can probably broadly bucket this generative AI impact on companies in three buckets. I think the first one is probably going to be more the companies that adopt generative AI, but that's more just table stakes to maintain their competitive advantage. I think then the second bucket I would see is companies that can see some sort of economic benefit, either in the form of faster revenue growth, maybe a bigger addressable market, or efficiency gains, and then you will see it in the margin opportunities, or maybe in both, higher revenue and more profitable. The third bucket, and here this is going to be quite interesting, I would think, is companies are either going to be disrupted or will be doing the disruption. And so if we look almost those buckets in turn, I think the first would be all those companies that integrate generative AI to maintain their positioning. They might make a, quite a big deal out of it every time they launch a new product, but it's unlikely to really differentiate their, their competitive position. Um, I see most of these AI type of assistants um, that we're seeing being launched now probably fall into this bucket. I mean, we've just discussed the QuickBooks example. I think it's interesting that they're not charging for this AI assistant separately. And that's probably because HR Block will probably launch a similar product. I mean, we just saw this this or last week, um, the same with Moody's, that will be launching an AI assistant integrated into Teams where you can interact with the Moody reports. Now, what is holding S&P Global back to do the same? And so as a result, it is quickly becoming table stakes for this type of technology. 
Um, I think at the end of the day, I mean, like any other product or solution, generative AI is just a tool and companies will need to produce a differentiated solution that is hard to replicate um, in order to create value. Maybe Nikhil, I mean, would you agree with this point? Yeah, I think I think that's a really good way to think about it. Um, I think that companies can differentiate in in two ways. Um, currently, I think companies that have a unique data set or a data advantage where they can create a, a unique model, those companies have a chance of differentiating themselves. And then the second is is companies with advantage distribution, where they can just push the the products to their customers in in a quicker manner than maybe a new entrant and 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 in that way um can create kind of a sustainable advantage and 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 get get some of this or or um um win win some of this kind of opportunity um Within bucket two, so companies that we think will derive some sort of economic benefit from generative AI, one example I quite like is uh, Booking.com. So Booking.com, as we know, is the leading uh, online travel company, um, and they've spent the last few decades converting people from booking offline either directly by phoning up a hotel or or um, a travel a travel company, and um, and doing it online themselves, right? Because it's it's much cheaper to do it online, and you and you and you can kind of customize it to yourself because you you're doing everything yourself. But um, it's still forty percent of travel bookings is is done offline or via tra- a travel agent today. And you might you might wonder why, right? And it's because it's convenient, right? People like the personalized service that a travel agent gives them. They like the travel agent to deal with all the complexities of working out their itinerary. Maybe the travel agent has kind of local knowledge of what you should do and what you should see uh, when you visit a specific place. And so um, so travel agents and, and offline travel still remains a big part of the market. But we, we think with generative AI products, a, a company like Booking, um, can offer an AI-powered travel assistant, which which they're calling their AI trip planner, that allows them to kind of move up market a little bit. So Booking has uh, a history of you know all your previous trips and all the other customers' previous trips. So it might know what kind of things you like to do while you're on holiday and what things other people like to do and did in different countries. They have all the reviews of, of all the different places and they, they obviously have all the hotels you can you can book on. So you can imagine how an AI product um, might become or replace some of that work that a travel agent used to do for you. And I, I don't think it's inconceivable to say that some of that 40% that used to go to the travel agent or the offline booking can now be captured by booking. And so that's probably an example of where uh, a market where people previously uh, wouldn't wouldn't have gone to booking.com for can now maybe use uh, a software tool to to do the the work of a travel agent. Um I wouldn't I wouldn't kind of give up on travel agencies completely because um some people will always prefer the kind of personalized human touch. Um, but I think it's just one good example of how generative AI can open up a market uh, that was previously kind of an inaccessible to to a software company. O- on the cost side, um, I think it's going to impact uh, lots of areas in, in lots of ways. Uh, one, one relatively kind of interesting example is perhaps in in video games where currently a video game designer or graphic designer spends a lot of time, an awful lot of time doing quite mundane work in terms of uh, creating 3D models where it's very detail oriented, it takes a very long time. 
With, with generative AI, they can go from idea to 3D model almost instantly, right? With just typing in a few words into a text box. And I, I think that we can think about um, the impact of these sorts of generative AI products in, in a few areas in this way. You can go from idea to, to writing or idea to image or idea to video or, almost instantly. And that obviously saves you a lot of time, but it also potentially makes you more creative because it, you can iterate faster on your ideas and, and, and come up with new things. So... That, that said, though, I, I'm I'm not 100% sure that um, the cost side of things is going to be a real differentiator for companies. I think that um, you know everyone is going to have access to these tools. So perhaps this should fit more into bucket one, right, where it might be uh, make you more efficient or save you some cost, but it's not really going to be a differentiator between different companies. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I think healthcare is maybe also uh, quite a big addressable market to think about that will clearly be impacted in multiple ways across the continuum of care. I mean, just one example that I could think of um, is an ER physician I spoke to recently here in the US. I mean, he had over 20 years of, of experience um, and he talked about I mean, how his administrative tasks and documentation just materially increased during, during the course of his career and how it's leading to like burnout, decreased quality of care, and importantly, also increased cost. And so I bet you most physicians don't go to medical school to do administrative tasks all the time. And so he showed me actually a pretty interesting example where they are already able to implement generative AI uh, to, to automate some of the admin tasks and also ordering um, some of the the drugs and, and 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 care that's required automatically. I mean, he he gets over two hundred messages a day, and so generative AI is able to go and look at all the historical health records, review the the email, draft the response, and in the process, almost save the physician about fifty percent time. Now, I think what's interesting is actually from a patient perspective, they get a far more emphatic message from that physician, um, that's clearly going to result in increased quality of care. So it will be interesting to see how companies will actually be able to monetize um, these things and where it's going to show up in the fundamentals. Thanks both. Um, you know, so far we've mentioned companies that fit either into the camp of having efficiency benefits or those that have revenue upside. Um, but Aubrey, are there any companies where we see, we've seen or will see multiple benefits accrue to a business given the developments of generative AI, as opposed to just sitting in one of the camps? Yeah, I mean, the clear company that comes to mind here for me is Microsoft. Um, they've got multiple ways to to win, um, and they've already got products in market um, across the technology stack that they're actually able to monetize. I mean, we talked earlier about efficiency, and so let's let's keep on talking about that for a second. Um, we already mentioned the developer community, um, but they're also seeing over $100 million of savings already from their Salesforce productivity with the rollout of a sales co-pilot for them. Now, according to them, and so don't judge me for this, but salespeople apparently spend over 65% of their time just on mundane tasks like forwarding emails. And so with Copilot, there's no longer the need to enter this data into a CRM system like, like Salesforce. And so data will be given in real time 
with guidance on how to run a meeting or a sales campaign. And so just think about how Copilot will be able to give you competitor data and how your product is differentiated in real time during a Teams meeting when a competitor's name is mentioned. Now, this is clearly going to significantly improve your sales pitch, the productivity as it and the productivity as it eliminates really the sales friction and lets sales sell. Now, from a revenue perspective for Microsoft, they really benefit in four ways in my mind. I mean, the first one can probably make the argument the X, the AI business, that revenue could potentially accelerate from here as companies that's not participated in those first two technology waves that we spoke about earlier are probably now realizing they need to move to the cloud pretty quickly in order to to take advantage of this technology. And so we can see acceleration maybe of their cloud business. Secondly, if we look across the stack, I mean, Azure is basically their giant computer in the cloud, and that's where all the, the workloads are running on. Now, for most of the, all of these generative AI assistance that's been launched in the market probably run on ChatGPT4, and that's running on Azure, which is the Microsoft computer. Now, Azure makes money by charging essentially a tax on every character in the query and the response. And so in some way, everyone's AI strategy at the moment is just to use more Microsoft product. And thirdly, they basically integrate all of this technology in all their first-party apps. Now, the one that I probably personally can't wait for um, general availability next year is Office. Now, when I think about my own workload, when I do research, I draft a research report in Word, I build a company model in Excel, and then do a presentation to do in t- to, to the team in PowerPoint. Now, for, for firstly, I can finally become a better writer and probably use the web browser less um, as generative AI assistant is integrated into the workflow in Word. You no longer have to worry about a circular reference in your company model in Excel as it will now be powered by natural language and not complex formulas. And luckily for me again here is I don't have to create a PowerPoint slide and think about my speaker notes for the team as the co-pilot will do it for me. Now, Microsoft is talking about 50% productivity gains when it comes to to office. Now, it'll be interesting to see how much organizations will be prepared to pay to get 50% more employees during a time when companies face significant cost pressures and a slowing economy. Microsoft is betting that $30 per month per user is a compelling argument to make. Now, if we just look at the numbers, this compared to currently the revenue Microsoft is generating from Office at about $10 per month per user. And so they just need over 20% of their current enterprise install base to adopt the co-pilot for Office revenue to double. And then finally, all of this technology that they're integrating and using internally for Microsoft They're also making these capabilities available for third parties to develop their own products. And so here's a quick way that one can see really Microsoft is actually pretty well positioned um, in this current environment. So it definitely seems that Microsoft, as always, is certainly keeping up with the times and continues to lead on innovation. 
But arguably, the type of AI integration that you've mentioned here with regards to Microsoft is more about evolution as opposed to revolution. Are there any businesses or areas of the market out there where we're likely to see a complete revolution or full disruption to the current status quo? Yeah, I think that in bucket three, when you think about that, I mean, it's important to recognize that we're still pretty early in this change. I mean, most of these things that's being developed are just the easier ones and it's the simple low-hanging fruit that's being developed. And so disruption just takes a little bit more time and longer to play through. So if, if we think about this from an investment perspective, this is clearly and obviously quite a tricky time as one, every management team that's that's being challenged um, as an incumbent will likely reassure all the investors that they're not not just seeing any change in their fundamentals, um, but they will also say, well, this is very good for them. Um, but at least historically, um, some of these changes will typically play take years to, to play out. I mean, when we look at the previous disruption cycles, the market derated the challenged incumbents by about 50% in the first three years and 75% from the peak in six years. And so I think this time around, we're probably going to see things playing out a little bit faster than historical cycles, but it usually takes about five to seven years for the impact really to show up in the sales and earnings of businesses. Now, a clear and very good example maybe to use that happened more recently will be Apple and BlackBerry. I mean, we had BlackBerry actually derates by about 90% post the launch of the iPhone, despite seeing more upgrades than Apple during the first four years post-launch. And so that's like the quite hard from an investment perspective. You need to be quite critical in the investments that you make. I mean, Nikhil, how do you think about this and where do you see some of the potential biggest risks in for disruption potential? Yeah, clearly uh, trying to figure out which companies might or might not be disrupted, as you say, is is quite difficult. And from our perspective, is I think a risky business. Uh, no one really knows how this stuff is going to play out. And we are obviously uh, very early. And a as you said, Aubrey, I think most of the examples we've seen and we've talked about so far are these kind of version one AI ideas where we take a typical process and we optimize it or we improve it um, w with AI. Clearly, when there's a disruption, I think it's 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 typically when a new company or a new entrant uses this new technology to create a product or a service that is kind of uniquely enabled by that a new technology. So in our case, it will be a product that wasn't possible before without this generative AI. And um, they do things in a kind of different way that tends to be kind of transformative. And as you say, Aubrey, I'm not, I'm not really sure that we've seen that killer app yet, that thing that's really going to change change the world. And maybe that's uh, what people are working on building right now. Um, though, if, if, if I was to provide an example of a business model, which I think is uh, ripe for disruption, it's the outsourced customer experience industry. So, so these are businesses which essentially provide outsourced call centers uh, to large companies, whether those are banks or telecommunications companies or retail companies. Um, and essentially what these companies do is they can source labor essentially in cheap uh, uh, geographies and then, and then you know, provide some training and, and organization, and then 
um, and then outsource and then allow allow large companies to outsource their their call centers and, and save some costs. Um, today, most of the interactions with uh, customer service agents are done uh, via voice. But as I'm sure you've probably noticed in your own life, um, it's moving more and more to text or, or chat-based service. And, and to me at least, this seems like a perfect opportunity for generative AI as we've already seen that the chat-based use cases is quite powerful and there already are AI companies or AI native companies that are building out uh, customer service uh, agents um, that are that are powered by AI. Um, and, and, and so if we're looking at, at, at some of these legacy companies, um, a cost per interaction or cost, a cost per call um, tends to be between two and four dollars, depending on uh, a variety of factors. An AI solution based on some estimates um, can be as little as 20 cents um, per interaction. And that, that's like an 80 percent decline in the cost. And, and you can obviously see why that's uh, compelling for companies and, and why, um, why that could be disruptive in, in the industry. And so companies like Teleperformance, which is the leading uh, call center company in the world, um, they, they can't really change fast enough to, to adapt to these trends because firstly, they, they're an outsourced labor company. They don't have expertise in, in software development and, and they, they don't know how to build these AI solutions. Secondly is that point you, you mentioned, Aubrey. There's, there's inertia in a company to operate the same way that they've been operating. And even if they were willing to change, they would have to cannibalize a large percentage of their business because because the cost reduction is is so much um and then and then maybe one other point which is kind of separate is that w- when the cost of of something declines as as fast as we've we've seen in in this example it it potentially opens up new markets so for instance if you were running a small a small business um, and you were you know an online uh, fashion retailer let's say uh, you might not have used a call center company in the past because the cost was prohibitive where now if it costs you know so much less uh, you, you might decide that this is actually something that you can you can use in your business, and so I think that's something people often underappreciate is that when when these new technologies uh, make the cost so much lower, um, it it potentially grows the market. So so maybe that's a good example of a of a business which could or could not be disrupted. Um, I know it won't be the only one and there'll be a lot more. And for us, um, we have to keep our eyes, our eyes wide open so we're not on the wrong side of that disruption. It's amazing how many companies and industries generative AI has already and will continue to disrupt. I mean, in the last 10, 15 minutes alone, you both mentioned as many examples of companies as there are fingers on my hand. But we've seen this before. With any new technology, there's inevitably going to be a churn in investments. So going forward and from a quality investor perspective, how do you navigate the uncertainties of something that has so many opportunities and risks to that end? Do we stick to our knitting and always do what we've done or do we start putting money on AI startups? Aubrey, how do we go about this? Well, I think firstly, it's important to remember it's our job as investors to incorporate all of these scenarios and to ultimately find and back the best innovators in the world. I mean, we like innovation-driven business models because they, they're able to generate their own demand, which means they're less dependent on economic cycles. They typically have less competition as innovation is backed by patents and it's very hard to replicate that type of innovation, um, which means they can benefit from innovation over a multi-year time period. Now, they typically have also very attractive financial models 
in the form of high return on invested capital, low capital intensity, and they typically don't need any debt. And, and finally, innovation-driven businesses almost they benefit from innovation um, like a snowball rolling down a hill. It compounds and gains momentum over time. And so it is incredibly hard for competitors to really catch up. And so when it comes to generative AI and our portfolios, I would make three points. I think we have to fully understand the business models and the reinvestment strategies of the companies we invest in because they're either going to be disrupted or they're in the process of doing this disruption um, using and implementing this technology. I mean, we can't just rely on broad themes, historical trends, and do almost a helicopter type of view on a business um, because the pace of technology change is clearly accelerating as we discussed, and that will require independent critical thinking. When it comes to tech diffusions, we have to also be quite realistic about what it will take to adopt and implement these type of technologies. I mean, the market typically tends to be too optimistic about the short-term benefits, but at the same time, they're generally too pessimistic about the long-term benefits because technology change and implementation and the benefits thereof compounds exponentially and not linear. And so as a result, the multiples can be a false signal. The market typically derates and waits for the challenged businesses to be disrupted. I would be careful of saying the risk is already being discounted, as it's really the case. Remember, the, the majority of a value of a business would typically sit in year three and beyond. And so history would suggest that missing out on the first year of a big technology change event is not that significant in the ultimate return profile experienced over the, whole, the full cycle. And so while we have seen a material re-rating and sev several of these so-called picks and shovels names in the market, I don't think it's too late to really back the true AI winners in the marketplace. Oh, well, personally, I find this all very exciting, if not partially terrifying. Um, but thank you both for your time and invaluable insights. I think it would actually be sacrilege to conclude a podcast on artificial intelligence without including some kind of AI intervention. So I had a chat with my chat GPT bot and uh, we speak most days and I asked her to provide me with a witty closing remark for a podcast about AI. There were some very strange outputs, but I thought the toast it wrote to itself was quite unique and it went something like this. Before we say farewell... Just remember that in the world of AI-powered investing, the only thing you should be bearish on is missing out. So embrace the bot, roll with the stocks, and may your returns always outperform your expectations. Thanks again, Aubrey and Nikhil. I greatly look forward to continuing the conversation. This podcast is a marketing communication and is provided for general information only and assumes a certain level of knowledge of financial markets. It is not an invitation to make an investment and should not be construed as advice. The views in this podcast are those of the contributors at the time of publication and do not necessarily reflect those of 91. In South Africa, 91 is an authorized financial services provider.